Warning, the Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to Not Real Art, the podcast where we talk to the world's most creative people. I am your host, faithful, trusty, loyal, tireless, relentless host, Sourdough, coming at you from Crew West Studio in Los Angeles. Man, do we have an exciting bonus episode for you guys today. We're here with the one and only Badir McCleary from Remote. Hey, Badir. What up, brother? I'm happy to be back. It's been a while since... We've chatted and I got a lot to talk to you about you know, <laughs> just from being you know, on the road and at these episodes. It's just it's been a lot of cool stuff, man. A lot of new developments that will only make the series better. I'm excited to talk about it. Man, I'm so excited that uh, that you're here to talk about it. And you're right, man. It's been a minute. And I tell you, I don't know about you, but life the last few weeks, man, it's just been rough. I ain't going to lie. It's been rough. Oh, yeah. But I tell you what, it's, you know, the dust is starting to settle a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it'll be January before I'm in the clear personally. And I know your life is crazy. So just the fact that, you know, we're able to find some time today to actually do what we love, yes, which is sir. A, spend time together <laughs> and B, talk about our mutual love and passion for arts and artists. So and yes, then and with a focus on public art with remote, because I tell you what, man, I mean, you're this remote series and I know our listeners know about it. But for those new listeners that may not know, remote is this exclusive series of what I like to call video stories this is your baby. This is your brainchild. You have been traveling, not just the country, but the world, exploring public art in various places. And what does it mean? And, and what's its impact? And, and what can we learn? And you do it with just such a human touch. You just do it with such a down-to-earth, relatable, accessible human touch that I think anybody, no matter if you're a newbie or whether you're an OG vet in the art world or what have you, you're going to get something out of this because you just bring a, a very unique and singular perspective and voice to this topic. I Thank mean, I don't know about you, speaking for myself, and I'm going to steal a line from somebody that you know, said this before, but it's like listening to you is like getting an MFA, man. I mean, you know, it's like <laughs> I'm learning something ever, you know, at a deep level. And that's what I want. I think that's what we both want with us being just diehard lovers of art. If we can get any moment just to share that passion and someone just to relate in the same way. I mean, that's like gold for us, right? Someone saying like, yo, dude, I enjoy what you're doing because that topic is, it aligns with my values, with my life, with how I see the world, you know, this creative space that we're living in. And you get to see, especially through public art, that creativity that we only imagine sometimes left there for us to enjoy. It's just awesome to just do the series like this with a brother that's so passionate and a team that's so passionate to really just drive home and continue to just bring awareness to what's happening out in the world. Because there is some stuff happening other than what's happening on the news. There are some things that are 
out here that can really bring a smile to your face, that can really make you contemplate humanity, look at life in a different way. Even with one of the episodes, which we'll talk about with DC, even the way to look at politics through public art. And I think that's very cool because we're starting to align our public art, not starting to, because we've been doing it, but really starting to become aware of how the public art aligns with our everyday values. Well, I couldn't agree more. It's so easy these days to get sucked in and feel really pessimistic and even nihilistic about the state of the world. So the question is, where does one find hope? Mm-hmm. Where does one find positivity? And it's for each person, it's personal. And each person, yes. it's a spiritual question, really. And spirituality is a personal thing. But I mean, I've always said art is, is soul food. For me, I'm going to see art and go to a museum or go see art in public spaces. I mean, to me, that's almost like going to church. It's a very spiritual mm-hmm. thing for me where I find hope and positivity. And so that's why I think this work at Remote is so important because, man, oh, man, do we need as much hope and positivity in the world as ever. And so, you know, here we are doing what we can do to let people know, thanks to you and your travels and your stories, that, that you know, letting people know, you know, hope is in your backyard. Hope is in your community in the form of public art. You just go check it out. Go think about it. Go look at it. Go put your hands on it. Go, you know, and experience that energy. You know? Yes. And It's so apropos that you mention artists like a church or a holy place for people, because being down in Texas, you know, one of the places I always go when I'm in Houston is down at the Rothko Chapel. If anybody's never been, please visit. Even if you don't go inside, outside is just, you know, they have a reflection pool, they have beautiful grounds and a sculpture piece outside that it's very serene. And The Rothko Chapel is just that. You walk in and there's a book for every religion, every denomination. It's a gathering place for everyone just to be, just to be. That's what public art is. You know, it's a place to gather and just be, contemplate. It really does feed the soul in a way that I've never had anything do before. And, you know, I'm not taking nothing away from anything, but it's just... I realize that when I'm standing in front of art, it does something to me. I seen a Instagram post the other day of a mother taking her daughter to the museum for the first time. And it was awesome because every time the kids stood in front of a piece, she would say, whoa, whoa. And, and it was amazing because I was like, I feel you, princess. I feel you. You know what I mean? Like, cause I do the same thing. And it just related me to, it's like, man, I wish everybody could have that feeling. And public art is out there for us to get that feeling. Sometimes we're so trapped in our own minds that we're we're not cognizant of it being all around us because it truly is all around us. But sometimes it takes a little journey or a trek to get your mind right to be able to see it. You know what I mean? It takes that preparation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's all happening, right? I mean, it's starting to see, you know, I think consciousness in the public sphere around art design, creativity is at an all-time high. And I think over the last 30 years, you can think about various benchmarks. I mean, let's face it, just for one example, Apple, right? Mm -hmm. Steve Jobs, you know, with the Macintosh, with the iPhone, with the iPod, the iPhone. These products were so beautiful, right? And they were so popular. And so people started to really embrace design and aesthetic, you know, in a different way around. They, They started expecting more out of their products and what have you. So, and so now I feel like 
I mean, public art, to your point, public art's always been around, but I feel like there's not just more of it, but maybe there's more of, well, there is more of it, but yeah. I mean, I need more of it because there's more demand for it. Politicians are more comfortable spending the public dollar or allocating the public dollar towards public art, which is a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like, to your point, I mean, we are enjoying a bit of a renaissance. And so you can listen to the news and you can get negative and feel a lot of shit out there. The world's on fire, mm-hmm. yeah. literally and figuratively. But there's hope. You can counterbalance that negativity and find hope in the fact that, that wow, wait a minute. Communities all over this country are spending good money investing in artists and art mm-hmm. to beautify and lift up you know, their communities. And that's incredibly positive and hopeful. People just need to go and embrace that, lean in, you know? I think this is why you're awesome at what you do, because that's a great lead in for where I wanted to go. San Antonio, one of the episodes that we did for the series, they're doing exactly that. I lived in San Antonio for about four years. I had family there. I worked for the military. I also, you know, I've done tech stuff for years. So I've worked in the military on the tech side there. And San Antonio is just a beautiful city. But It felt when I was there in 2008 to 2010-ish that it was still young on the art side. It had museums. It had a few galleries that were doing well. There are some folks out there who really know art, especially Southwestern art, which is beautiful, especially when you see it across the backdrop of Texas and it's in its environment. It's beautiful. But it wasn't an abundance of public art, or I wasn't aware of the public art that was there. But now there seems to be a real focus. And I got to give kudos to the the city leaders because they're putting some real funding behind making public art a part of San Antonio's brand or personality. On the Riverwalk now, they had the Riverwalk Gallery. They're building an art park. And, you know, the artists are really coming out in droves with new murals, with, you know, creative sculptures and public art programs that are bringing in artists who've never done public art before and teaching them the process of being able to create their first art piece, working with materials, working through blueprints and plans. And I was just like, wow, this is exactly the leadership that a city that's dedicated to providing artistic opportunities with the money that they're granting these organizations. This is exactly what that looks like. You know, and I was excited to do that episode because it was, you know, I was seeing so much and it was, I almost, it almost blew my mind because I was expecting the stuff that I knew, you know, even though I go back and visit and I see stuff there, I've been to the Alamo for the first time during this episode, even though I worked right across the street from it. It's insane. It's always like that. But yeah. (laughs) I lived in LA 20 years. I've been to, there's so much I haven't seen. (laughs) Yeah, like it's crazy because I was like, yo, I realized I'd never been in there. And mind you, you could snap your fingers and be done with the tour. It's really that small, but it's that historical. It made me just kind of take a look at how San Antonio sees its public art because there's tons of history in Texas. And I started to see the Arvida de los Arbeles, you know, the one that reminded me of the Calder and almost like a mobile with all of these different objects and symbols to, you know, history. And it just was amazing. And I started to really open up and start to see the city for what it is and what it's becoming. And 
stuff like that really, really blows my mind because I get a chance to highlight civil institutions, which we haven't been doing, you know, a lot lately. But just the kudos and get, just to get that as part of an episode of seeing that growth was amazing to me, brother. Yeah, man. You're discovering these stories in so many different places. And I mean, part of what, and that's something you said earlier, reminded me of that. I mean, because at the end of the day, right, you're a storyteller. I mean, you're an educator, you're a teacher, you're an advisor, certainly a cheerleader. Definitely. Definitely. I wouldn't call you a critic. I call you a cheerleader. You know what I mean? The, the, yeah. Our world's got enough critics. Artists <laughs> need more cheerleaders. I think Definitely. of myself as a cheerleader. The point is, is that there are so many stories that aren't being told in the art space. The blue chip first world of art has done a very good job of building one kind of business model with one kind of uh, approach to media, storytelling. Okay, fine. But my God, that doesn't serve 99% of the artists and the art stories that are out there outside of the walls of the fanciest galleries and museums out there in the public square. And you're just out there discovering these stories, sharing these stories and obviously curating the stories in a way that makes a lot of sense. Because I mean, you'll go to a place, first episode was Palm Springs Desert X out there uh, in the desert and the hot and the heat and the (laughs) bugs and the the vermin. I think he said vermin <laughs> out there in the wilderness. There's all types of stuff out there. I could imagine what happens at night. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Don't go at night. That's when the aliens come. <laughs> That's the thing. It's like, if you've ever been out there in the middle of the night and we both have yeah. in the desert, you look up and you think to yourself, man, no. Yeah. No, this is exactly the spaceship lands, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it, it randomly just lands here and nobody will ever believe me. So it's just like, oh my God. And then, so you go, you, you went from there, then you traveled to Philly. Oh yeah. Your home turf, so to speak. And you unpack what's happening in Philly and tell some very important stories and introduce us to some very important leaders in the art scene there in Philly. Then you were back in LA yeah. for episode three, right? Talking about what happens to public art when you bring it inside. Yeah. What is that transformation? Is it a net positive, a net neutral, net negative? I mean, like, what does that, what does that do? Yeah. You know, what does it even look like? <laughs> outside art inside, right? Then you were in San Antonio for episode four, yeah. right? San Antonio and Houston. Remember, I had, Houston. To, I had to merge them together. That's right. That's right. And why, and why not, right? You're right there. Like, right literally. There. It's a, right there. And then most recently, the most recent episode, episode five, you were in DC. Oh yeah. Yeah. Houston and DC was cool because those were two parts of the series that were, two two new things were introduced. It was really like the first interview of an organization with, you know, that's dedicated to doing public art out in the street with Up Art Studio of my buddy Noah and, and Elliot down there. Like they're just champions of public art, you know, especially in, in Texas and also DC to where public art was the exhibition. And it also was a first time on the National Mall. You know, when you think about that with, with all these monuments and things that are out there in all of this public history, there was never a public art show. And it's like, whoa, wow, why not? But the way it was handled, and I got a chance to meet Paul Farber, who was one of the curators of the Monument Lab exhibition. Really, really great guy. We had a good convo about the Derek Adams piece, which is the playground, which was amazing. I have a lot to say about that. But it allowed me to meet the creator on site, in a sense. In this case, the curator. It was awesome to really get 
a firsthand background of conversation while he was leading the tour and had one of the, you probably see him part of the episode toward the end when I'm speaking, one of the tour members came over and was like, can you talk about that again? Like, that was cool. And I was like, oh yeah. And I came over and I spoke to the, the tour group and that's the community that public art brings, you know? And I thought that exhibition was the perfect, perfect, perfect sample for what a community public art exhibition really is, could be, and could be a baseline for future things, especially in national parks or local parks to where it could be about history. It could be about seeing what the future could be of a space. Even architects could use it to say, hey, we're thinking about bringing this aesthetic to this. And now with AI, you know, you could easily 3D something in that area to get community opinion. So I just thought of that in such a different way of like public art is driving political and communal thinking in a way that it hasn't before. And I think those episodes really lean into that. And I was happy for that. That was awesome. It is fascinating even how people react to art in an outdoor space, in a so-called public space versus in a museum or a gallery, mm -hmm. right? What is it about the fresh air? <laughs> well, right. What is it about the blue sky and the sun above and the fresh air that gives people the permission or the, the not in permission, but the agency or the confidence, the confidence, yeah, confidence, actually, that's the word, right? So confidence to say something, to ask something, to talk about something and express themselves around that art. As soon as though that same person goes into a museum or goes into a gallery, nine times out of 10, they become much more introverted and much more buttoned up and quiet. Because oh, yeah. Don't ask any questions. <laughs> it's like the library effect, right? The li like you, you, you could have the same amount of shelves worth of books in your house, but you can go in that same room and just yell all you want. But there's like these social rules that when you enter this space, this is the etiquette. It's almost like these aren't yours. So act accordingly. Right. With public art, people feel like it's, it's theirs especially as a taxpayer in America, you know, it's in a public space. You're like, yo, like I've put at least some money into this. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know what I mean? I can get a little bit closer, you know? Yes. And I think that's what's needed. You know, people need to feel like they have agency in it because then they'll protect it. They'll engage with it. They'll have something to say about it. They won't just never mind it. You know, when it's in right. a private space, people will say, yeah. ah, well, it's some rich guy putting up some stuff or this and this and that. But if it's if it's in the public space, people actually have an opinion. And that's what's cool. Like people are they aren't afraid to share their opinion either. I look back to the release of uh, and I I'm I got to get to Boston to see this, but Hank Willis Thomas's piece where the Martin Luther King the embrace, but it was like yes. half and half like it was parts of the body that kind of was like unexplainable for people. It looked like something yeah, else. It, it might controversial. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. You know. Yeah, yeah. But if that was inside of the museum, people would just dismiss it as people don't know what art is. But once it right. came out public, it gave the people a chance to have a conversation with the artist. Even if the artist wasn't there to talk to everybody, they were able to lay their opinions out of what they felt. Some good, some bad. But I think I'd like to think that's what the artist wants. They want the dialogue about what this piece is and what it what does it mean to that area? What does it mean to that space? And what does it mean aesthetically? Because the city of Boston's residents has to have to look at that. They have to look at that piece. 
So shouldn't they have a say on right. the aesthetics, the meaning, where it's placed? Public art, again, it allows the public to play a part in what's happening in the theater of the art that's there. Yeah. And then when the stars and planets align just right, there's so much pride. Communities take so much pride in that art. You know, I'm mm-hmm. thinking I'm a Chicago, I'm a, you know, Chicago guy, born and raised outside the city, but but lived downtown for a long time. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Picasso piece downtown, iconic, mm-hmm. iconic. It is so relatable to Chicago. Chicago loves it. People see that piece, they think it's Chicago. And of course that predates the bean, right? Mm -hmm. So the bean was installed after I moved to LA, but I mean, you know, now everyone thinks about the, they see the bean, bean, they know Chicago, you know? And so, and then these cities are able to generate revenue around that art, you know, tourism and all that stuff, you know? Oh yeah. Because they know, they know the emotional attachment that people have. Kudos to them for understanding the marketing around this, because they knew that, the Picasso for the city's residents was a generational thing. The new generation of art-loving Chicagoans, they needed something for them that was contemporary, something that they could call their own. You know, and I think the bean, I've heard people say, you know, all types of things about it. What is it is, you know, it's supposed to be a sky cloud and whatever, but it's (laughs) one of those things that it's attractive. And that's what cities love. Chicago's done a great job of not just leaving the bean as a solo piece, right? You know, the digital piece, I keep forgetting that artist's name, where the faces are there and the water comes out, that interactivity, that's amazing. And then you go down to the next part and the other artists, I I, I literally have photos and all that, but I cannot remember these artists' names for the life of me. I, I literally look at too much art, but they have, it's like a crowd of sculptured soldiers. It's literally like four straight blocks of just public art. That was the city understanding we can create a place for people that do not want to be inside, that want to, like we talked about, feel free, want to see the sky, want to be able to engage, don't want to be restricted by someone telling them, hey, you can't, or or at least there's less of you can't there than it is in the museum. And I love spaces like that. I'm eventually going to get to Chicago and do one. I have so much footage of just being there. I need to get there and talk with some good folks and do a Chicago episode for this. Uh, don't worry, it's coming, folks. Do my it's hometown, coming. sweet home Chicago, baby. Make it happen. Make it's, it happen. It's coming. I got too many buddies, and you know, especially like the Lower Wacker area with murals yeah. down there. It's that's yeah. becoming, you know, super dope. Yeah, my alma mater, Columbia College, is there, and you know, a lot mm-hmm. of those, a lot of students are spearheading a lot of those murals down there. When I was going to school there back in the early '90s, I mean, none of that. I mean, it was mostly billboards and ads. You know what yep. I mean? It wasn't art. But Chicago, on a certain level, maybe because of its legacy in architecture and design, advertising, it was a big advertising town. But just because of maybe of its history, for various reasons, it maybe is a bit more open-minded to public art maybe than other cities. Because, I mean, you know, the Midwest is conservatively, is, is regarded to be pretty conservative, and it is. But Chicago itself is, in some ways, I think, pretty open-minded when it comes to art and culture. But you mentioned, you know, this topic about Chicago we talk about the Picasso, we talk about the bean, we talk about those very tall digital walls that mm-hmm. spray with the faces, spray water. The scale of those things are just unavoidable, right? Like mm-hmm. you see this. So let's talk about scale for a second, because I mean, even in one of the pieces, I think it was the, maybe it was the LA piece when we were talking about bringing public art inside and what does that do? You know, how does scale 
the, in the perception of scale change and, and, and how is it, how important is scale with public art, Badir? I think scale today depends on your marketing budget, if that makes any sense. Because yeah. right now, I think the scale of things is going to be about what's going to draw the eyes. You know, let's talk about something that we both marveled at, you know, in our in our conversations, you know, the sphere in Vegas. That's a public yeah. art marvel. The scale of that thing, it makes people that may not even want to see a show just go see what it is. Right. You know what I mean? Like it's 33 stories tall. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it, somebody, somebody said it's God's golf ball. Like, don't piss God <laughs> off. He's tee off. Right outside of Vegas, which, you know, will be on the Vegas episode, which I'm definitely including the spear too, but the Seven Magic Mountains right outside where they're just these tall, large rocks, big rock formations, but they're huge. And the scale of them makes you want to go. It makes you want to just take an exit off of a random desert and go see them. The scale, I think, is it adds to the intrigue level. Almost the question of why would someone put this here? And I think that's a question often not answered. I think a lot of people, and this is where public art administrators, artists, and even developers could do a better job at is providing information, whether that's through VR possibilities. I mean, we're expanding the realm of understanding how technology is fusing with art in a major way. If there was more information, maybe video about the installation, you know, the artists talking, I think public art in itself becomes many points on a university tour of art. You know what I mean? The scale has to come with information. Smaller scale works are usually, I would say, more personable. Um, to the community, we usually see smaller scale works of like people or mascots or symbols that represent the local area, local community. But sometimes larger, larger works have a more defined meaning and sometimes they're not expressed as much. So back to the original question, how much does scale matter? Again, it depends on the message that you're trying to get across. Sometimes you have to go super large to get people interested. Again, we talked about the Alamo. The Alamos, even though it wasn't a public art piece, it's history. It's bigger than its scale. So the history behind it makes that building or that complex seem way larger than it really is. So yeah, when right. you get there, it's just like, oh, I expected something, you know, this. And it's the other way around for public art. You know, you get there, you see this big thing with minimal information. You say, well, why did I even do this? That's a great point you're making. I mean, you know, and it, by the way, like it's so important. This is a super important point you're making because it's easy now. Mm -hmm. All you need is a QR code. Yeah. yeah. Just put a QR code on it. Make sure that QR code links to a video that the person wants to watch, a two-minute video that gives them the, the history and the context and why they yes. should care. Yes. Yep. And I got to give a shout out to our brother, Man One who, you know, I talk with a lot and we do, we both do projects with a lot and he understands that in his work. We did a piece together down in Placentia, you know, where his goal was exactly that. And he brought yeah. me in and said, hey brother, we want to tell that story. And he's great right. at doing that in his work. A lot of artists do as well. And I think if these public art administrators 
would take the time to understand that. Look from the artist's perspective, especially when muralism is involved, because these artists are sometimes in that community for days, maybe even weeks, you know, and they're engaging with people, they're talking with them. They have to explain what they're doing to hundreds of people. And I think cities and all that have a responsibility as well, just to lend that courtesy. It is a, not an intrusion, it's an addition to space. People want to know what's coming. They do that for introducing the new Walmart. We know all about the new Walmart that's coming. We know all about these other businesses. And that's that's the marketing budget, right? Because they've got to allocate money to the storytelling part, the marketing. Exactly. That's exactly it, brother. They don't allocate any money to the storytelling. And if they did that, I think the acceptance of public art rises by like 25%. People feel connected at that point. If you got a leaflet in your door or an email that says, hey, new public art coming to you. This is what it's about. This is what it means. Come out and meet the installer. Come out and meet the artist. Right. You would get right. more buy-in. You would have more public art buy-in from the community. Yeah. It would yeah. feel yeah. like we're all a part of the process. Yep. Yeah, no, that's key. So I want to do one thing Yeah. and then I'm going to ask a question. So I want all the listeners to know that right now, all these videos that we're talking about, that we're about to talk about, are available exclusively at notrealart.com. Go to oh, notrealart.com, look for, you know, search for Badir, search for remote, it will pop up, you will see these videos. We're gonna be redesigning the website to really feature them even more prominently, super easy to find. But go to notrealart.com, people, and watch these videos right now because we're talking about Palm Springs, we're talking about Desert X out in Palm Springs, we're talking about Philly, we're talking about LA. We're talking about San Antonio and Houston. We're talking about Washington, D.C. We got more episodes coming. Oh, yeah. So a little there. We'll talk about that in a second. But here, I want to go back, brother, because you were in each of these markets and you and I could philosophize all day long about all these nuances. So, you know, like, let's <laughs> stay focused. People are like, stay focused, stay focused. Okay, okay, okay. I'll try to focus. I want to just go down the list a little bit, right? Because, you know, a lot of maybe a lot of listeners haven't seen these videos. And I just want you in your own words to talk about Mm -hmm. why you think they need to go and watch these specific videos, right? So, for example, let's start at the top. Desert X and Palm Springs. Like, is you, and of course, that was months ago now when you were there. And it's not that, you know, so you you might have to go back in the old noggin a little bit (laughs) to kick loose some of those uh, most poignant memories uh, or most poignant thoughts. But when you think back on Desert X this year and you think back on what you saw there and what you're experiencing there as you were trying to tell that story, what comes to mind and, and, and why should people go and watch that video? Yeah. One thing about Desert X was it's one of those things about, you know, kind of getting out of your comfort zone. We all had to do that, you know, during the pandemic where we weren't in close proximity. People sometimes left the city. A lot of people went to Joshua Tree and places like that outside of Los Angeles. I think public art around that time really got a good marketing boost because you could be out in the open air. You could still enjoy art. You could still be around people, even if you were distanced in Desert X. I found that I think it was the year before for the pandemic, but there was still some pieces that were out in the desert. And then, you know, with Noah Purifoy's place, which, you know, we have an episode on that coming soon. I got a chance to just leave the city and go see art somewhere else that was not confined. It allowed me to think differently about it. And I wanted to share that because there's some amazing stuff that's happening 
right outside of these large art markets. There's places outside of every major city. In New York, you have like, no, I'm sorry, Minnesota has the Walker Art Center out there, like in the little wooded areas. You know, they have the Jack Shaman School out in, I think that's upstate New York. Pennsylvania have a lot of places. Texas has a lot of outposts like Marfa, things like that. There's a lot of creativity because there's a lot of opportunity for an artist to really expand their minds. So I wanted to start the series off with that, just to establish that we're going to be traveling to see work. You know, we're just not going to be stagnant in cities. We're going to be going different places where we're going to be opening our mind to what public art looks like. There were pieces that were condensed in the community, like we had the one piece by the school. We had the one piece made out of industrial materials by Matt Johnson that was by the freeway storage containers. We had pieces mm -hmm. of meaning. So it was really a salad bowl of mm -hmm. opportunities, of ideas, of ways to see art. And I thought that was a good way to start the series of preparing people for what they're about to see the stories that are contained in these pieces and the ability to not only think outside the box physically by going outside your normal proximity, but creatively. We talked about scale. That was introduction of scale, uh, introduction of thought materials, and also an exhibition because that's an exhibition as well, not as tightly knit or reminiscent of a traditional exhibition like the Monuments Lab one in DC, but this one, you actually had to put effort, gas mileage in to be a part mm -hmm. of it. So I thought that defined remote immediately. Yeah. What I loved about that particular episode was that it sort of addressed that issue of what is public art when there's, there's no, you know, no public, yeah, you know, no public <laughs> around. You know, Nowhere. what does it mean? Because, I mean, you think about it, right? All of this great stuff we're saying in public art, and I know that there's some folks out there that watch HD and Discovery Channel and all that like I do. And you see those TV shows of like the world a hundred years after people, you know, and you see things like what the Statue of Liberty is now decrepit, you know, it has all this stuff. And it's like, what do these art pieces mean? Will they still be able to tell the same story to a new species even? If we're lucky to have some artworks or monuments last a thousand, two thousand years, what do they mean to the new society? The same way we're grasping Stonehenge or the pyramids or, right. or you know, things in Easter Island that we predict that or assume that these things are thousands of years old. They meant something totally different to those generations of people, but what do they mean to us? For us, it's tourism, understanding the history. Will that be the same thing? We might have if 300 years go by, somebody might think of one of these public art pieces of Desert X as a temple to a higher power because yeah. the translation could be different. The material. I remember it's it's so funny on the first, the remake of Planet of the Apes with Mark Wahlberg, the spaceship crashed and it was like now this holy land, Kalima. Kalima was just because I think it was like live animals or something was just, but they turned it into something that was completely different. Their interpretation of it was formed by their experience. Our interpretation of this public art is informed by our experience. So it's like when we talk about, I can imagine what happens at night, the aliens come and all this stuff. Like, what does that piece mean at that time? 
<laughs> you know, I know it's crazy to think about that, but it is so true. And it's so interesting because we don't know shit. Yeah, At the end exactly. of the day, we don't know shit. And, you know, we're doing our best to try to figure out, okay, what did that mean or what was the significance of that? But I mean, man, oh man, I tell you what, uh, that's why we have to just always have a bit of skepticism and a bit of whatever, because the so-called experts are just doing their best, man. They're not, Mm -hmm. they don't know Jack, you know what I mean? They know more than that. But they're just trying to figure it out and God bless them. But I'm just saying, like, let's keep it real. Like, you know, there's just way more that we don't know than what we do know. And, you know, it's funny. I'm remembering years ago, I had a conversation we were, I don't even know what it was. We were talking about the Holy Grail, right? Like, mm-hmm. where was the Holy Grail? And why couldn't they find the Holy Grail? And I said, I said, they can't find the Holy Grail because they don't know who did the dishes that <laughs> night. I mean, if, if you just go figure out who did the dishes and start there, because he, you know, he or she was the last person to touch the Holy Grail, as far as I know. <laughs> so anyway, I mean, we... <laughs> oh, yeah. But that's the thing, too. Like, it could have been thousands of people in that village to do the dishes it is like absolutely and then, and then it comes back to the documentation who wrote down that erasmus or whatever his name is was the last person to do this isn't like the chilies you're not clocking in and clocking out you know what i mean like, so, you know what I mean? absolutely and here's another one for you here's another one for you and then we can move get move on because this one's gonna be it's like, you know, turns out a lot of people don't realize, speaking of, of the Holy Grail, a lot of people don't realize that the legend of Jesus Christ has like really become bigger, of course, as things do, right? The fish mm-hmm. gets bigger the more and more you tell the story of having caught that fish. But it turns out what a lot of people don't realize that Jesus was a performance artist and the crucifixion was actually his masterpiece. So you know what? I'm just saying it's a possibility. Think yeah, and it. then, Think you know. It. If folks, I'll let the listeners in. There was a lot of controversy around exactly that with an artist named Andres Serrano. And listeners, when you get a chance, look up Andres Serrano's work and what that means to that. It can be disturbing, but he's having a conversation. And again, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. what's art without a conversation? That's it. That's you know? why, And that's the whole point of art is to have yep. a conversation. We're living in such sensitive times that conversations are harder to come by. And that's what I yes. love about you and I, you and I are just, I mean, we're doing what we love to do. We're talking about art and artists and this great work you're doing and we're having fun with it. And it's, we're making jokes, but we're revealing things. And that's what it is, people. Mm-hmm. It's just a conversation. You too can have this conversation with your friend, exactly. with your so-called art historian or whatever, and friend and at the museum. What You can have these conversations. These are fun. Yes. Can't you hear how much fun Badir and I are yes. having right now? It should be pretty self-evident that, that we're having oh, a ball yeah. over here. And you too can do this. So anyway, brother, yeah, man. I mean, I just, in episode two, you were in Philly. Yeah, that right? was a special one for me. That was special because the Tiberino family, they're very important to the city of Philadelphia and the artists in the city because Ellen Powell Tiberino, Big Joe Tiberino, they've done so much for artists. I mean, Philly is known for public art, you know, mural arts has done an amazing job of just giving artists opportunities to be creative, you know, providing programs for them to learn. They were kind of like the blueprint for how to run an arts organization in a major city. And I'm, you know, San Antonio, I think is following in their footsteps because Jane Golden really does an amazing job there. The family, it was just like just a rich history. You know, when we talk about the markers of the city, those are living markers. That home, that space, they started years ago. You know, we're 
two artists bought property to share so that other artists can create. I think that's the embodiment of art making. You know, and to be friends with their children. One of Gabe is one of my closest friends. And to hear of the family story, to see the murals that he's done all around the city. I mean, you can't go around Philly and not see a mural that Gabe's done, you know, or worked on, you know, and continuing that family legacy. That was just important to be able to show, be able to tell the history of and just pay homage, you know, and say thank you in a way that also educates the public. There's a few people that hit me up that says, hey, are they open? You know, can you go visit? You know, and I'm able to direct them there. And it's bringing awareness of a great history of just art making in Philadelphia, in public art too, because they're part of the fabric. They're one of the families that are part of the fabric of what Philadelphia art making is all about. And I think for remote, that was a key point too, is showing that Art practice, you know, whether it's public art, family sharing is part of what this is about, too, because public art is all about sharing that idea. Well, and by the way, the Philly episode really gets to what we were just saying about storytelling, too, because Philly mm-hmm. with the markers, like they're ahead of the curve on that. I mean, they're really and maybe I mean, they've been doing it from day one. Right. I oh, mean, yeah. you're creating markers. And and what and for people who haven't seen the video, what, what do we mean by markers? There are these signs, there are these beautiful cultural uh, signs of cultural historical information mm-hmm. that explains why that corner is significant, why yep. that building is significant, why that park is significant, why that location is important. You can read these beautiful informational signs, aka markers, that tell you that story and give you that exactly. context, and it just provides so much more richness and so much more emotion. Yeah. And even for me growing up there, it was an education about my neighborhood. I mean, I'm more aware now of, you know, what's around me as a kid. You just, you know, want to play, ride your bike and do a whole bunch of other stuff. But as an adult, I'm aware of the greatness that grew up on the blocks that I frequented. Seeing that's through the markers, you know, and you're like, wow, this person lived here or, you know, this happened here or you get to just it's inspiring. It really is. And, you know, I think that episode, I think that's a great one worder for that episode. It's just inspiring just to see what's around, who's around, who's doing what, how it's being shared with the public. Well, so the third episode, as we've already kind of talked about a little bit, because you were in LA and you were exploring really this idea of bringing public art, aka outside art inside, Mm -hmm. you know, taking public art private into a gallery space. What does that do? But one of the hallmarks of that episode, of course, was your conversation with Charles Dixon and being with him in his studio. So let's just cut to the chase on this one and tell us about your experience with Charles and that conversation, because that was the hallmark and the highlight of that episode, I think. Charles is just amazing. I mean, when you have over 60 years of experience in art making and woodwork and metalwork, and you know, you have a great amount of sculpture pieces, large installations around the city, and you just see his love for it, even at the senior age that he is. I mean, he's out there working himself. He's always looking for new materials. He's like the search and rescue person. He finds materials, he brings them, and he sees new life and things that we would discard. I've seen him do work with five-hour energy bottles. I've seen him turn a car into a bird. You know, he's working on a mobile vehicle now that's an art piece. 
he's just a creative brother. Like being around him is inspiring. It's exciting. He has tons and tons of history because he's worked with some of my favorite artists. He's seen Los Angeles public arts programs change over 60 years. Having that history, having someone with that knowledge of having public art outside, but also taking those same public pieces and the way that he works and not adjusting it, but just bringing it inside to a space. How does that work? Sometimes, how do you ship something like that? You know, how do you secure? How do you insure something like that? How does the gallerist install that? Understanding those things for me as a curator, understanding those as a researcher, even looking at things like how would you conserve these works? How do you protect these things? You know, I was working with him to even document the materials, because if these things go into a museum collection, they need to know what it is, where it came from, because things erode, they rust, and sometimes they might need to be replaced to keep the piece whole because after a while- Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's an expiration date after a while. So Charles was just amazing to talk to. And in contrast with Thomas, who's also very dope, his work is more fine, formal. It seems ready-made for the gallery space. Sometimes, you know, even though I was introduced to it outside, it felt almost out of place outside. Mm. It felt Mm. too fine for outside. Too slick, too, too polished. Slick. Yeah, like yeah. too polished. Nature hasn't agreed to this. You know, yeah. like when something just looks out of place, and I don't mean out of place like it wasn't beautiful or I didn't enjoy it because I totally did, but it just yeah, was yeah, like, yeah. oh, I I now see the pl- the difference in the placement of these different works. And it kind of, it was my idea to show the comparison and contrast in both of those practices. Yeah, man. Now that was such a special conversation and a special episode for sure. And then, you know, from there you bounced from LA, you bounced to San Antonio and Houston. So we've kind of talked about that episode, but I mean, like people, people need to go check it out because, you know, it really is. I mean, listen, Texas, depending on where you live in, you know, my dad was stationed in Fort Hood in Colleen, Texas. So I've got a lot, I got a lot of memories growing up, positive, lovely memories growing up going to Texas, seeing our family friends, swimming in the big old Texas pool in the hot <laughs> Texas sun. And that was the 70s and the 80s. And Texas has this incredible rich history. And these days, you know, in our political environment, maybe Texas gets a bad rap for various reasons. You know, okay, fine. But like with any state, Texas is so beautiful and has so much positivity and so much goodness there too, in addition oh, yeah. to whatever drama's going on. But the fact that San Antonio and Houston are embracing this because, I mean, I'm old enough. I remember going to San Antonio and Houston over the years, and they've really big time up their game, you know, in terms of public art and in terms of what they're doing to embrace artists and local artists and artworks there to celebrate and lift up the community. I mean, I'm really proud of them. I'm proud. And I hope, of course, everybody points to Austin for what it is. But in terms of public art, Houston and San Antonio might be on the the leading edge in Texas, right? I mean, you got Marfa, but I mean, that's a different thing, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, we'll be in the later episode, which I'm doing Dallas and Austin together. I filmed the Dallas part, but I wanted to do Austin because like Texas is huge. Yes. You can, you could literally get so a whole season, just Texas. There are places to go all throughout. By Mm -hmm. the way, I'm sorry, but we got to talk because if you're going to Dallas, 
I mean, well, I guess you've already yeah, been. I, I went to Dallas. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm just going to say we got to we got to somehow do a segment on the Cadillac Ranch, but that's a whole nother conversation. I, anyway, yeah, I want to go. Oh man, I yeah. want to go. Oh yeah, we gonna we got to do that. That's that. Yeah, we're talking about that. One thing I will say about public art on my road from Dallas down to Houston on I-45, there's so I'm driving like maybe like like two in the morning, I'm leaving one of my artist homies homes and just driving down, going to my cousin's place. Cause I was staying over at his house overnight in Houston. And we talk about aliens. So you're driving down I-45 dark night. You're just chilling. You're probably just riding. And out of nowhere, it's this large, probably about maybe I, I got to say it's about a hundred, maybe 200 feet, large sculpture that comes out of the freeway is of Sam Houston. And I'm pretty sure people have seen it. It scared the living life out of me, bro. Like, I I didn't know what was happening. It's late night, and it's just a man walking out of the woods. <laughs> I lost it. I'm surprised I didn't swerve. I just, all you hear is a, oh. And then I yeah. realized, like, oh, my gosh. So it was, talk about scale. Talk about yeah. catching it at the opportune time. If I didn't yeah, look that yeah. up online and know that that yeah. was actually there, if I'd have just told somebody, they probably wouldn't believe me. They thought I would have seen a large alien man and probably would call me crazy, bro. <laughs> oh, yeah, man. That's that's it. Thank goodness you did know that because I mean, I'm sure many people have been, <laughs> been scared to death. How many accidents has that piece of art actually caused? <laughs> it has to cause at least 10. When you're looking at that, you're especially at night and it's lit, it's lit at night too. So it's like it's if you if you've driven on Texas highways at night, you know, like I have, it's usually mostly dark, you know, like just the car lights. lights but when yeah, you, the, the moonlight, maybe, yeah. When you see just a ball of light and then you see a man walking out of the woods, it's something to just you'll get an oh crap moment immediately. You're gonna wake up real fast. Oh, immediately. Immediately. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. So, uh, so party people listening right now, go out there and check this uh, episode four of Remote and watch and, and see what we're talking about here. And then the most recent episode, number five, Washington, D.C., man. I mean, and we've, we've also talked about that a little bit, but just for me, I'll just, I'll just ask you this question. It's like, what is the significance mm-hmm. of public art in our nation's capital? So public art in a city like San Antonio or in the desert, like Palm Springs or whatever, like that's one thing. Right. Mm -hmm. But when that place becomes our nation's capital and you see public art there, Mm -hmm. what's the metaphysical transformation, the significance of our nation's capital, how does that impact the public art and how does it change the conversation? Yeah. I have two perspectives on this for the viewer. It shows that our government actually cares to allow, because you can't just go installing stuff on, you know, the National Mall. You know, there's standards, there's a quote unquote brand, a government brand of how they do things, the message that they want to put out. So for the public, I think it's looked at as a a very good step in the support of arts. You know, I thought that as well, you know, looking from the public side to where it was like, wow, you know, they're really embracing contemporary art, you know, as a way to Add artists as part of the conversation, because we know the institutions have tons of the the greatest artworks that are made in this country and on view and a lot of them in storage. But, you know, it just was great to allow some of that to come outside and 
live with the public. You know, again, not a lot of people want to be cramped up inside of institutions all the time. You know, they get to lay out on the, on the lawn. They get to see it next to the Washington Monument, the Lincoln Memorial, all of the other monuments and memorials that are on the mall. For me as an arts professional, I got a chance a few years ago through Sotheby's and Claremont, Claremont Graduate University to be on the Arts for America down at the Capitol Hill. So I got to actually sit in on things like budgets, NEA grants, understanding how governments or state governments and local governments are funded. Where does the money come from? How much is allocated? So it was really interesting from that perspective for me to see like, man, they're really taking an initiative. They're trying to add arts as a big part of understanding or a big part of being a citizen. Arts, like almost like it's a requirement. Being a citizen, you're going to see art, you're going to participate. It's part of our life. And then also it was really cool because the curators, they knew what to do with it. They knew what artists would tell the right stories through their work. They were able to have tours, again, back to the information part, you know, to where they were providing information about what these works mean, you know, and enticing people like me to come out and talk about it and also share ideas with the other folks who were giving their perspectives on it. So I think it was great for them to understand and also for, you know, folks like me to relate it to what's happening in our world. And, you know, I mentioned earlier the playground, and I thought it was very apropos because people look at Capitol Hill as this sort of political playground where there's all types of jousting and seesaws and all types of stuff and all this quote unquote juvenile stuff that happens in a playground and all these hoops and things like that you have to jump. You know, I just thought that was very brilliant, you know? Like Derek Adams, it was, most people would look at it and see like, oh, playground, what does that mean? Right. But I was like, you know, you think of the significance of where it's at. So it's like when you look at that type of stuff in situ, kind of like when we were in LA, right? And we were looking at Richard Serra's piece, the band inside of LACMA, it's like, you know, what does this mean? Well, it's it could be a contemplation piece, you know, walking around, you're thinking, you know, the same place, same thing with that, you know, me sitting on the bars, you know, I'm moving around, I'm showing like I'm going from up, down. It's movable, it's flexible, you know, like just yeah. like politics, you know, there's no one way. And then you start to look at it and it's like, all right, you know, one side is color, one side is colorless. How does that play into the argument? What would America be if it didn't have all these colorful things like art? What would it be if we just looked at all these brutalist buildings down in D.C. on Capitol Hill? And if it didn't have a new designed building around it, this would just look like a cookie cutter. Kind of like playing the role of an advocate in a sense of like, you know, what does this mean? How does it change? How do these laws look in a contemporary art form? Mm, yeah. You're such a great teacher, brother. You're Thank such you, you're so brother. inspired. Thank you, man. You, I, mean, you I love it. Gift. Such a gift. I can't just, I can't wait to see what's next. So we want to tease, right? We want to, we want to <laughs> get people excited about the future a little bit. Oh yeah. So you, I know you're working on more episodes. So oh, yeah. to the extent that you want to, the extent that you want to, to share a little bit, tease us a little bit about what's coming over the next few months. Like where are we going with remote? Where are some of the new, some of the cities you, you, you might be going to Chicago? It sounds like what's coming up. 
I'm going to try to hit Chicago for sure. I'm going to be going back and doing Austin for we talking about the Dallas and Austin episode. I got New York City that I'm trying to finish up with some really, really good pieces there. Also some haunts that are located in different spaces, like, you know, Graffiti Pier, different little small places that used to be one thing, but are now been adopted by public artists. I'm hoping to get down to Miami for Basel to, to for that one episode because there's a stadium, Miami Marine Stadium, that is a hot spot for a lot of public art down in Miami. And every year in Wynwood and all that, there's always some new creativity. There's always some new stuff in public art, like rains, especially during that time because of the inability for artists to be able to show in, inside all the time. You know, not necessarily at the main fair because there's regulations, rules, and a lot of money that goes into participating in the main fair. But even the smaller fairs, you know, there's just not enough venue space to cover everybody, you know? So folks take to the streets. And that's such a beautiful thing because you see some amazing works that get put up. You see the creativity of, I don't want to call them the average artist, but the regular artist that just loves doing art. They just want to be a part. Yep. Yeah, that's the thing, right? It's like with Basel, you know, to the extent that it created a, f- a fertile situation, a fertile ground, you know, all these other flowers are popping up like all over. And then, of course, you can probably thank Mr. Goldman. Oh, yeah. The Goldman family, right, for sure. For helping to bring all that because, I mean, he knew the power of art to transform that community, Wynwood, because, you know, you didn't, you, 30 years ago, you did not go to Wynwood. Yeah. <laughs> You know, yeah. and now it's the hottest uh, real estate to play in Miami. You know, Man, it's crazy. It's, and it's crazy to see that transformation because, like, I've been covering Basel. Uh, if I get a chance to go this year, this would be my 10th year covering Art Basel from the main fair all the way to Wynwood. And I've filmed ever since 2014. And the change of Wynwood, you know, when we talk about just what's been taken down to what's been put up, how the real estate has changed and the vibe of what it's become, you could really see the commercial aspect of public art. And I think that's something that I want to address in one of the future episodes as well is when these places of artistic freedom become places of commercial opportunity. Yes. Yes. And by the way, how do the aesthetics of the art help you identify what the motivation is and what the intent, right? Developers are not, they're not trying to be political. Yeah. And artists love being political, right? So it's a very interesting dynamic. Can I have some abstract expressionism here, please? (laughs) And even like, you know, when we talk about art law and public art, you know, what does it mean when someone takes a photo in front of a public art piece and produce it into something else? You know, I remember, you know, and one quick story, I think it was like 2014 or 15 down at Basel, there was an artist, his name was uh, A-Hole Sniffs Glue, where BMW or Mercedes, I, I think it was, they literally jacked some of his artwork and had it in one of their campaigns. And it set off a whole thing about, you know, artist rights. Yep. Folks, look up that story. It's a great story for, you know, artists understanding, you know, their rights in public art and just all of these cases that are prerequisites for these conversations. But yeah, like that's the type of stuff when we talk about, you know, growing the series and all that, I want to touch on to that type of stuff more because there are stories inside of the remote story. There's more to actually talk to, even in the spaces we've already covered. 
there's so much more that is there. Put another way or put simply like season one of remote, we're just scratching the surface of public yeah. art. Yeah. Season two, season three, season four. I mean, we're going deeper, deeper, deeper because there's so many layers, so much oh, complexity, so much interesting intended and unintended consequences. Right? Oh, yeah. There's a lot. You know, there's a hell of a lot. I'm excited. Yeah. I'm excited. Oh, man. Me too, brother. But yeah, I'm thank you, brother, for coming on. Thank oh, you. Thank you for always having me, man. Like, you're welcome anytime, anytime. And I just love spending time with you, brother. And I love when you come and spend time with us here on the podcast and people listening, people out there, go to notrealart.com. Look Please. at the, watch these incredible video series. Just search for it. You'll find it remote. Badir McCleary, the one and only Badir McCleary. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. You're going to learn. You're going to feel like your consciousness is expanding because it is. And you're going to, your brain, you're going to be getting smarter because you're going to be getting new knowledge. And you're going to want to travel to these places because like, that's the other thing too. This is a travel show. Yeah. We want you to get up off that seat and go. Like watch these episodes on the road. To the art that's piece. It. I think that's, that's the great way to see these. You know, if you're, we all got cell phones and iPads, put a remote episode on while you're traveling to go see art. You know, it gets you excited. It gets you in the mode to ask the questions that you want to know the answers to. This is what it's for, you know, and art, if this conversation isn't a great lead up, watch those episodes. You know, it'll, it'll get you prepared. I'm excited. I'm always you know, thankful of having our conversation and friendship because we always go to, I mean, we could literally talk to you guys for three hours and more about all this stuff, but I'm just so thankful, you know, that the Not Real Art audience is embracing the series and the Not Real Art team is really given the opportunity to really show what's out here and allowing us to be great. So, Brother, thank you. Thank Morgan. She's writing some amazing... Read Morgan's stuff too, y'all. Like She's writing some cool stuff about these episodes, man. It's really, really setting the textual tone for what you're about to see. And I wanted to just give her a shout out because she's killing it. Oh, man. Thanks for that. Yeah. Shout out to Morgan Lawrence. Morgan is our editor-in-chief over at the blog, notrealart.com. And she's... Yeah, she's doing a great job providing you know, a setup and some context and some love, you know, editorial love for this incredible series so that people really are able to embrace it and lean in and understand it and consume it in, a, in the right way and the best way. And so, yeah, shout out to Morgan for all that great work that she's doing. And it, it's a team, right? It's a team effort. We're doing a lot with a little over here, but we get up every day, passionate, excited to do what we do because it's not a job, it's a calling. And, you know, our passion is helping artists tell their stories and promote their work. And that's what everything we do is about. And I know that's that's why we love working together, Brother Badir, because, you know, you do, I mean, that's your passion too, spreading the love and raising the consciousness around the fundamental importance mm -hmm. of arts and culture in our world. So thank you for that. And so I guess, so people go, go to notrealart.com right now. Check it out. Get off your butts. What are you doing on the screen? Go pick up the screen. Go watch these videos. You're going to love it. All right. With that, we'll sign off and we'll let people go watch these videos. Yes, sir. Brother Badir, great seeing you, my friend. Always good to see you, my brother. Talk soon. Have a beautiful day. You too. You too. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Not Real Art Podcast. Please make sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. Also, remember to subscribe. So you get all of our new episodes. Not Real Art is produced by Crew West Studios in Los Angeles. Our theme music was created by Ricky Peugeot and Desi Deloro from the band Parlor Social. Not Real Art is created by We Edit Podcasts and hosted by Captivate. 
Thanks again for listening to Not Real Art. We'll be back soon with another inspiring episode celebrating creative culture and the artists who make it.